For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Epic Virtual Charter School wants an investigation of State Senator Ron Sharp. The school is accusing the Shawnee Republican of intentional misrepresentation of legal guidance given to him by two state agencies and defamation of the school. Sharp has been a major opponent of Epic, raising questions about the legality of its students' attendance practices. Neva, do you think there will be an investigation of Sharp? Well, I mean, the the, uh, the Senate Pro Tem's office uh, this week said no. At this time, they have no plans for an investigation. So I think this is the ongoing saga of Epic and people like Senator Sharp and others who have been critics and want answers and this give-and-take exchange that continues to just get hotter and hotter as we go through uh, the summer. And we have interim studies and, uh, and things going on now at the Capitol, which uh, give further amplification of, of this issue. So I think it will be something, as we've said before, until there are there are legal resolutions, if need be, after all of the information is gathered, I think at this point it is going to just continue to be this give and, give and take between uh, all of these uh, very interested parties who clearly don't just don't agree on much of anything. Ryan, if you can get past the substance here, you know, whether you think Epic's done something wrong or whether you agree with Senator Sharp, you know, whatever that is, regardless of whatever you think of either party here, just look at the the bare tactics. And I think that the tactic that we're seeing here by Epic Charter Schools is a tactic of distraction. I mean, they're trying to shift, uh, they're trying to shift attention over to some alleged wrongdoing or misappropriation of funds or resources by Senator Sharp. And, and frankly, you know, he's doing what a state senator does. I mean, whether you agree with him or not, whether you think he's on a, a wild goose chase or not, he's doing what a state senator should do. If he thinks that there's wrongdoing, he's demanding records. Uh, he's trying to hold state agencies' feet to the fire. He's trying to make sure that he's a good steward of tax dollars. And, you know, all of that may be for naught, but the idea that we would go and investigate a state senator uh, for doing that's just ridiculous. I mean, it's interesting that Epic didn't just, you know, they're saying that he's defamed them. Well, if somebody's defamed you, that's a civil case. It's interesting that rather than going to the district court and filing a defamation lawsuit, they went to the Senate president pro temp. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, if you file in district court against him for defamation, he's got constitutional legislative immunity. You know, the state Supreme Court's been clear that you know, what you're doing in the process of your normal legislative acts, you have immunity from that. And then second, if they filed a defamation suit against him, it would open up the discovery process. So all of the documents that Senator Sharp's trying to get right now through Open Records Acts, he's going to be able to get through discovery, including subpoenas and potential deposition of Epic Charter School officials. So you know, this, this to me seems more like a PR tactic than anything else. And Eva, Senator Sharp is a client of yours, but I'm wondering, if in, in a kind of a case, of Epic maybe blaming the messenger in this case? Well, I think, I think as Ryan said, I mean, this is a case of distraction. This is a case of just uh, uh, competing parties who don't agree on anything, that the, uh, the negativity of kind of this whole, this whole discussion just continues to escalate. And I think, I think this is, you know, one party taking a swipe and seeing what the reaction is going to be on the other side. Um, and, and I agree with Ryan. I mean, they're there is a course to take if uh, if Epic chooses to take that, but uh, it opens up a much wider, a wider, a wider ranging game than that than what they're in right now with respect to Epic. And if you don't like what Senator Sharp's doing here, there's a way to hold him accountable, and that's at the ballot box. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you know, what he's doing is exercising his legislative authority. If you don't like the way he's doing that, then you go to the ballot box and you make a case to the the voters in, in that district to 
you know, uh, throw him out of office. And then it's up to the voters. Well, and let's and let's remember, Senator Sharp is someone whose background is an education, yep. a career educator yeah. in, in high school, uh, someone who has a great passion for education. So the fact that he would be involved and interested in every, you know, every type of education issue that's come before the legislature during his time there is not a surprise. So I think I think that's the kind of the add on to uh, to this exchange that sometimes gets lost in the mix. Yeah, he's not just a critic of Epic. He's a critic of any school that does. He doesn't Absolutely. feel is doing he's, good he's, he's served on the education committee. Yeah. He's been involved. And so this is this is something that has clearly been his focus from day one when he came to the Senate. Oklahoma still holds the number two spot in the number of uninsured in the United States. Our state has more than 14% or 548,000 people without insurance. Only six other states have a rate higher than 12%. Ryan, how do you think this will impact the debate over medical Medicaid expansion? Well, I think that underscores the strong correlation between underinsured populations and the lack of Medicaid expansion. I mean, you know, out of those six states that were uh, it, that are that were twelve uh, percent or higher. Twelve percent or higher of those states, only one has uh, expanded Medicaid, and that's Alaska. And they've got special circumstances with the delivery of health care and health insurance there that I think you know stand them apart from the rest of the nation in terms of comparison. So this is a really strong case that if we want to increase the number of insured people in the state of Oklahoma, the fastest and most expedient uh, way to do that is to expand Medicaid. If we do that, uh, experts say that it will increase insur- uh, insurance rates by health insurance rates by around. Uh, uh, 200,000 Oklahomans would have health insurance if we expand Medicaid. That cuts that rate nearly in half. And, you know, another key point from the study is that it demonstrates that even though uh, we still have high rates of uninsured people in the state of Oklahoma, we have seen insurance uh, coverage go up as a result of cheaper policies that are available through the uh, through the exchange under Obamacare. All right. Uh, Neva, sorry. <laughs> well, Ryan, uh, that is a key point. I mean, the fact that in since uh, from 2008 to 2018, I mean, there there was much more um, much more coverage. I mean, we were at 18.7 percent uh, back in in 2008. So the number, the percentage has uh, changed. But the other element of that is with the Affordable Care Act, uh, it made private insurance more affordable. So even this year, according to the statistics, 150,000 Oklahoma Oklahomans bought private health insurance uh, through the federal exchange. So, you know, again, we're, we're we, all of these are debating points when we talk about this bigger picture and this and this potential for uh, Medicaid expansion to be on the ballot next year. But I think uh, when you start looking at these numbers, I mean, this is something that this legislative working group uh, that's trying to tackle this and right now at the Capitol, they have to look at ways uh, and it's about creating more private more private jobs. So with health insurance, it's about uh, figuring out a way to get more federal money potentially. And that's where the rub has been is uh, do we take the full-blown expansion uh, of of the dollars from the feds uh, with the strings that are attached or we, do we try to do something different? Oklahoma is seeing an increase in commutations and paroles from March through August. The Pardon and Parole Board recommended commutation for 140 inmates compared to just 10 last year and 436 parole recommendations up from 309. Neva, is this coming from new corrections reform laws? Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think that we can see with the new executive director of the Pardon and Parole Board and kind of this new process. I mean, there's been the creation of the administrative um, parole function where just the ability to streamline and and bring to the board in a single vote to recommend a batch of inmates that are nonviolent crimes for parole. 
uh, it gives a, it, it gives a, a much better process to be able to deal with the, to deal with the, these issues. So um, at the end of the day, I mean, these recommendations go to the governor, who ultimately gets to make that final decision. But I think we are going to continue to see through criminal justice reform measures, the laws that have already been passed in Oklahoma, that we will see this uh, immediately showing a difference in the process at the Pardon and Parole Board itself. Right. Well, and these numbers don't even take into account the fact that the expedited process uh, under uh, state question 780 retroactivity that the legislature passed last year. And that, that basically says that if you had a felony conviction under a law that would now be under, under a uh, crime that would now be a misdemeanor because of state question 780's passage in 2016, that now you're eligible to have that felony reduced to a misdemeanor on your record. Um, and you know, so that, that hasn't even taken effect. That takes effect in November of this right. year. So, I mean, we're going to see first. even more there. I think that what that says, though, is that we're looking at uh, you know, no, huge numbers of people that are eligible to be processed differently uh, and treated differently as a result of criminal justice reform efforts. We shouldn't have to have that extra step in there, though. I mean, with State Question 780, there wasn't a retroactivity provision in there. What that means is that State Question 780 looked forward. You know, so if you were charged with one of those crimes, simple possession or a property crime, under a certain amount, then you're charged with a misdemeanor. But if you'd been charged with a felony the day before it went into effect, or even if you'd committed that crime uh, or, or allegedly committed that crime the day before it went into effect, then you are charged with a felony. And so what we need is we need a retroactive application or presumption of retroact- uh, retroactive application of all criminal justice reform laws. Nobody should be sitting in prison or should have a felony record uh, that just because they happen to uh, be caught and prosecuted uh, before a new reform went into effect. If it's good enough looking forward, it should be good enough looking back. And I also have to go ask uh, not only uh, the corrections reform laws, but how much is this uh, kind of a shift in attitude as we go away from the state strong on crime, the, the tough on crime attitudes of the past. Well, I think I think it's clear, even uh, Judge uh, Alan McCaw, who retired longtime uh, district judge from Comanche and Cotton Counties, who uh, is the person running, running these uh, meetings, I mean, he's made it very clear that uh, he wants to make sure that everyone understands that, that you don't go into these meetings with the presumption that everybody's got their mind made up. And he made the point that, you know, oftentimes in the past, there's been that uh, feeling about the pardon and parole board that, you know, the fix was in already, the decisions had been made, and nothing was uh, going to change during the course of the meeting itself. And his his position has been very strongly stated in these meetings that, that he believes that there has been a attitude change uh, that has not only infiltrated the board, but the state, the governor, the legislature, and really, uh, I think the citizens of Oklahoma by how they have responded and reacted at the ballot box. And then after, uh, after these uh, uh, measures have been passed. So I think that in terms of the inmates, the victims, uh, the the prosecutors, the defense lawyers, the whole gamut, I think that they can see what's being stated here is that they want a system that people are fairly heard and respected in that process. And I think you've got people now on the pardon and parole board that clearly are demonstrating that fact. Ryan, why do you, th- why do you think that, I want to know about the commutations. Yeah. I was not only, I was 140, that sounded like a really interesting, but only 10 at the same period of time last year. Why, what is the difference there? What is the big jump there? I mean, I think that one, you're looking at, uh, you know, potential retroactive application of sentencing laws, you know, folks that would not be convicted of mm-hmm. a mis- un- under 
wouldn't be convicted of a felony today and potentially a misdemeanor. And, you know, so I think that we're seeing more and more people, you know, taking advantage of that. I mean, uh, you know, some of the laws that have been passed, even under Governor Fallon's administration, that eliminated mandatory life without parole for nonviolent drug offenders. And we saw, you know, people making applications that were sitting in prison for the rest of their life for a drug crime uh, mm-hmm. without possibility of parole, going to the governor and seeking a commutation to a life sentence uh, or even something shorter than that so that they had the potential to get out. I mean, we're we're watching now and we talk about attitude shifts. I think that the people of Oklahoma are way ahead of their elected officials here. I think elected officials sense that criminal justice reform is important to the people, but I think the people are just even so much further ahead. They're ready for more. And we, you know, this is a, an, an isolated anecdotal uh, piece of evidence for this, but Patricia Spottacrow recently rearrested right. woman who 10 years ago was arrested for $31 of marijuana, received a 12 year prison sentence uh, and a 30 year probation on top of that. Uh, she was ultimately approved for early release by Governor Fallon, arrested uh, just a few days ago for some viol- some technical violations of her parole, of her, her probation. Some fines, fines, yeah. And so the people of Oklahoma stepped up and said, we're going to pay this for mm-hmm. Now, here's the deal. She still has 30 years of probation for that. I mean, she's still under uh, the thumb of the state for $31 of marijuana. And I think people are looking at this and saying, this is just ridiculous. And the, you know, these laws don't really serve anyone uh, uh, in, in any way, and we've got to change them soon. House Speaker Charles McCall says he's ready to get started on redistricting efforts. McCall says he will appoint members to committees early next year. Redistricting is done every 10 years based off numbers compiled in the census. Ryan's census day is April 1st of 2020. So is this premature? Absolutely not. And, you know, I think that, you know, the state is wise to prepare one for the census to make sure that we've got uh, as accurate of a count as we can get so that we don't leave anything on the table in the state of Oklahoma. And when it comes to, you know, the population of uh, of the state and, and after the census, I think that it also means that when we look at redistricting, and there's a possibility that we could have an independent redistricting commission that's created by a ballot measure. Um, but in the event that that doesn't happen, or even if it does happen, being able to begin to compile all of the data and the maps and uh, work towards that process, it's, it's very complicated. It's very technical. And you know, what I'm hoping is that we've learned so much in the last year uh, as we've watched national cases uh, percolate around the partisan effort to gerrymander uh, these districts and the, just the you know, the, the patent effort to make sure that one district is preordained a Republican district or one district is preordained a Democratic district. And that just really upsets the very idea of democracy. I mean, if you're a voter and you're walking into the uh, to the ballot box and just the, the elections already decided by the very nature of the lines that were drawn, I mean, that's not really democracy. And what we're seeing is when we allow political figures to draw those lines, we're seeing that more and more and more because you've got these consultants that come in uh, behind the scenes to help make sure that that happens. So an independent redistricting commission to pair with what's happening right now is really the way to go for Oklahoma. Neva. Well, I think I think uh, that Speaker McCall taking the position that uh, that he wanted to move forward with this bipartisan uh, House Redistricting Committee uh, really kind of along the lines of what was done 10 years ago, that if we all remember, uh, had bipartisan support and was passed, you know, uh, uh, by uh, uh, by the by the legislature and it had input across the state. I mean, they had 27 members. Uh, they broke it out into the five regions, basically uh, kind of along the lines of the, the congressional districts. They held nine town hall uh, town halls across the state. And I think from what we're hearing from the speaker is that he wants to replicate very, uh, a great deal of that, uh, believing that it will 
we'll come up with the best uh, the best process that will be open and transparent. I think that's what people want. And, you know, it's not just words. They want to see the results of that. And so I'm optimistic that just like we saw 10 years ago, we will have a process that allows, yes, there will always be some in the minority that feel like they didn't have enough input. But the reality is there will be sufficient input, I think, across the board. Now, on the Senate side, uh, the pro tem seems to be uh, taking a little slower track in terms of uh, making a determination how they're going to move. But this process, uh, by and large, I mean, is one that uh, every state recognizes. It's become much more more efficient in terms of just the reality of being able to use technology and much more of the streamlined process of being able to to deal with the numbers and the math of looking at uh, in Oklahoma looking at a state that is very diverse. I mean, when you look at the uh, when you look at the the urban and the suburban and then the rural, I mean, you've got to take all that into account. We have house districts that uh, span. I mean, much like uh, a couple of the congressional districts span multiple counties, and 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 so. So uh, that will probably continue to be the case uh, in some of the rural areas, just given population shifts. But I think in the metropolitan areas, especially in Oklahoma and Tulsa counties and and the uh, surrounding areas, we're going to see a lot of give and take because the numbers have grown so much in the last decade that population-wise, to get 101 House seats and the 48 uh, Senate seats, I mean, there's going to be a lot of give and take uh, across the board before they get a final final lines drawn uh, when the time comes. mentioned it the house was it was it was very open it actually passed without any problems in fact it was it was pretty much uh, almost a unanimous decision there were some some no votes but the senate uh went to court uh, yeah, last yeah. time so uh the fact that the senate president pro tem is kind of dragging his feet on something like that does that raise some concerns you know i think that you know we talk a lot about wanting to have confidence in our elections i mean you know that was really the and i think it was a bogus argument but i think that you know that's really the <laughs> argument for voter id laws is that we want to have confidence in our elections we want to know that there's integrity in our election process. Uh, and I think that when we talk about redistricting and uh, allowing the very people that are up for election to draw the lines by which they'll be determined whether or not they get to run and then and who gets to vote for them, you know, politicians really shouldn't get to pick their voters. And I think that that does something to talk about the integrity and confidence that we have in elections. I will say this, though, as, you know, as a lot of progressives out there are championing independent redistricting reform as a potential solution for partisan gerrymandering uh, to bring back some confidence and integrity in, in that uh, district redistricting process, I'll say that that doesn't really solve a lot of our institutional problems. I mean, if we really want to look at some of our democratic institutions that are failing right now or in, in failure right now, we really need to start thinking about things like multi-member districts, proportional representation, and ranked choice voting. You know, those are real election reforms. You know, this is just kind of reshuffling the decks on the on the Titanic right now. A Kingfisher business owner is vying for Senator Jim Inhofe's job. Firearms store owner J.J. Stitt plans to run as a Republican for the U.S. Senate seat in 2020. Now, Inhofe hasn't declared whether he will even seek re-election yet. Neva, do you think this will move Inhofe to make an announcement? I think I think Senator Inhofe will make the announcement when he makes the announcement. I don't think if one person jumps out there or 10 people jump out there saying they're going to run against him in a primary or a general election, that's going to make any difference in the world. I mean, I think we've seen that in the history of, of the time that he's been in elective office. And let's remember, I mean, here's someone who was elected in 1994, looking at the upcoming election. I mean, he's raised already $2.3 million. He's got a million six in the bank, no debt uh, to his campaign, uh, no debts. So he's well positioned and can certainly raise much, much more than that if, if necessary. I mean, he, in, in 2008, 
state uh, uh, in that general election campaign. I mean, he raised over six million dollars in a in a race against Andrew Rice, who who raised about half that three million, but still a very competitive race. So, you know, I think uh, Senator Inhofe, like any United States senator up for reelection, takes nothing for granted, and uh, you know, it's certainly uh, it certainly kind of signals that we now are in the fall season of folks are going to start to really make their final decisions. Are they going to run in 2020 for whatever office they may be looking at? The primaries run in July of next year. We June. still haven't had end June, of June. June of next year. Yeah. We still haven't seen a Democrat. Yeah, I mean, there, there have been a few Democrats that have that have floated their name out there, but we haven't really seen what we would consider a you know, serious viable right. candidate. They can raise the $3 million that right. Andrew Rice raised to make it a really competitive race, whether that's against Senator Inhofe or you know, J.J. Stitt, uh, the Republican nominee. I mean, it, and I will say, you know, J.J. Stitt's website, <laughs> jjstitt.com, uh, is fantastic. There's, there's a section on there uh, about J.J., uh, farm and ranch and when you click on it it's pictures of cows no words <laughs> just pictures of cows it's pretty fantastic that's, that's the ag uh, vote right there and, and there he does have a law enforcement section where he's got a picture of himself with the two united states senators from texas i bet that that section probably doesn't stay up very much longer because they're they're probably going to want that down I, yeah i'm i'm with neva i think senator enhoff's going to do what he's going to do here uh this isn't going to affect uh whether he runs or, or doesn't run if senator enhoff doesn't run uh, you know, there are going to be candidates of much higher profile than J.J. Stitt that jump into the Republican primary for that for that race. I mean, in the event that there's a political vacuum, you're, you're going to see every Republican that's ever had statewide aspirations make a strong or take a strong look at running for United States Senate. And I think the fact that Senator Inhofe has been fundraising, I mean, giving every appearance of uh, preparing for another another race in 2020, that there's no indication that he's thinking about retirement. So, and and let's point back, I mean, we talk about the the Republican uh, challenger or someone at least that's, that's announced. When we think about back six years ago, Matt Silverstein, who was the, the Democrat that mm-hmm. ran, I mean, Inhofe raised $4.8 million, uh, and Silverstein raised less than a half a million dollars. I mean, it was not a viable contested race at all. And I think that's kind of where it sets up right now. I think there's no real uh, feeling among the the political types, the pundits, or anyone really uh, uh, taking a look at these Senate races across the board for 2020, that this is a race that's going to get very much attention because it's not going to have viable uh, opponents uh, on either side. Is Inhofe untouchable? I don't know that he's untouchable. I mean, he's, he's certainly, you know, uh, made himself a national figure and, and kind of in the well, way that a statewide figure, the, certainly yeah, a mean, statewide yeah. figure. But I mean, I think that, you know, if you had a really strong candidate that was running against Jim Inhofe, I think that there would be national interest uh, that would be able to come in. I mean, the, the financing would be there if you had a candidate that felt like he was vulnerable in some way uh, and that there were political traction in the state of Oklahoma. But if you start to look at the poll numbers right now, that's one of the problems. I mean, if you're out trying to attract money in state or out of state and recruit candidates, I mean, you walk in with poll numbers that show Senator Inhofe starting with such a considerable advantage. Uh, it's it's really hard to imagine who that candidate is and what they would have to do to become viable. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.